that a unicorn is a mythical creature. Africa, for most businesses, feels like the desert. So how do you build camels instead of unicorns? Episode 14 of the Seacast. I've got a phenomenal guest with us today. We've got Tumelo. I typically say to people that I'm a professional liker of things. What that means is I just like looking at life through a multidisciplinary lens. His passion for history, curiosity about the future. What I fell in love with the most about marketing and its mechanics was human behavior. How is it that we connect with all the generations being young entrepreneurs? So they get trusted with money. Because at the end of the day, the conscious group of vibes, bro. <laughs> You actually have to be providing that. And it's because of the sort of Western concept that everyone has to build like a social media platform. Sure, those are really first world problems. But are these customers happy? Not satisfied, but are your customers happy to be served by you? You can't preach to a sea of people. You need to be speaking to one person in the audience. Hey, I'm Josh Dillon. So first of all, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to watch this episode. Before we jump into the next podcast, I just want to take a quick moment to explain to you why we started the CreatorCast. Four years ago, I founded a company with the goal of connecting Africa to the digital economy and the world to Africa. Over time, we realized that this challenge was a lot greater than what we had expected. In order for us to achieve this vision, it required something extremely important, community. It takes a village. That's why we started the CreatorCast, to create a space where we can interview and profile the members of our community and share how they are connecting themselves to the economy and others too. So that's how the CreatorCast became a thing. We made this podcast with the hope of illuminating what is possible for our people and inspiring you to join the African wave yourself. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about what this vision is, but I'm going to tell you at the end of the podcast and I'm going to let you know how you can get involved too. Until then, let's hop onto the wave. Let's start this journey of elevating Africa. It's a pleasure having you here. Let's get into it. Tumelo, you have a real enjoyment when it comes to tackling challenging projects. I also know that you are dedicated to creating businesses that make a meaningful impact. And I am really excited to have a conversation with you today as a trailblazer in the space that you're in. And yeah, just find out more a little bit about your journey and how we can learn from that and take it forward with the things that we're working on today as well. You might have embellished a little bit so we can, we can, <laughs> we can temper the audience's expectations just a little bit. Um, but I think most of what you said is accurate. Thank you so much for the kind introduction. I appreciate it. So we named the business purposefully with a, with a, uh, it's sort of one of those names that you can't say it correctly if you don't know. And then once you know, you know it forever. Right. Uh, so it's casuistry institute, right? So think casualty, but casuistry, right? So casuistry institute. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think, I think you've done, you've done most of the introduction, whatnot. I typically say to people that I'm a professional liker of things. And what that means is I just like looking at life through a multidisciplinary lens and trying to solve problems from that particular perspective. So I'm really excited for this conversation. And I think that building what we call camels, you know, in the tech space, we typically talk about unicorns, right? Um, and one of my favorite sayings is that a unicorn is a mythical creature. So 
a camel is built for the desert. And I think that Africa for most businesses feels like the desert. So how do we build camels instead of unicorns, right? So real things that can survive in this environment. Um, yeah, I'm excited to have that chat and explore this journey with you. Yeah, it's an interesting thing that you bring up there when you talk about how the environment that we operate in feels like a desert, right? And I always talk about this kind of perspective that we have here when it comes to business owners in Africa. Sometimes it feels like, you know, we have to deal with 10 times the problems and we have one tenth of the resources to deal with them. And I always say, you know, I feel like from one side, it seems like a disment that we operate in is very unforgiving. But on the other side of the spectrum, it's also our superpower, in yeah. my opinion, yeah. because when it comes to operating in this tiny box, trying to do these amazing things that we're trying to pull off and achieve in our day to days, that's really, that box is what forces us to be creative with the resources that we have at our disposal. And I think that's why we have things in South Africa, like the most advanced banking or one of the most advanced banking systems in the world is because we operate in this environment that's so challenging that it forces us to be creative to the point where we innovate in ways that other countries could only imagine of. So for me, that's actually our superpower. So I'm really cool to, I'm really, sorry, I'm really keen to talk about this, um, you know, this idea of creativity. And I think that's where we kind of align a lot. Not only just that, we also align in the sense where we are also connecting Africa to the digital economy. Yeah. Um, we solve, we're using technology to solve problems, using data to make certain conclusions and deductions that help people make decisions. And ultimately what we're trying to do is build the economy. So, so yeah, like there's very much an alignment. That's why I needed to have you here today on the, on the Ccast. And I wanted us to start off the conversation because when I was going and doing some research, I saw that there was a quote that kind of stood out to me and it was a quote by Seth Godin. I don't know if you yeah. remember the quote. I, I'm not sure I remember the quote, but you, you can, you can, you can yeah. hear. <laughs> so the quote was doing work that matters for people who care. Yes. And I wanted to ask you about that quote. I wanted to ask you what, what was the reason for you putting that quote in your LinkedIn bio? Ah, yes. Doing work that matters for people who care. I love this quote. I mean, there's a couple of Seth Godin quotes that I love, but I love this one in particular. Um, mm. All right. So we have this idea in entrepreneurship that problems are sort of these external things, right? Um, where we're always talking about how we should be seen and looking for opportunities. Uh, and it's essentially about sort of being able to spot patterns and understand what these patterns are like. Now, you and I have been, well, you and I are both born in a context of abundance, right? So we, we're not in the environment where we've just come out of a world war, right? We're not in the environment where we've just fought against multiple countries for different uh, structures, but we're in an environment where everything that we're doing is predicated off of the understanding that we come from an abundant um, spectrum. So looking at that particular perspective, is it then gives us a framing around the environment that we were raised in, or the environment that we grew up in, right? So the idea of doing work that matters for people who care is every single problem is attached to someone's narrative, someone's narrative about their life, right? And that's why certain brands resonate with other people more than other brands resonate with other people because there is a certain 
element around how a product connects to a person's problem space, a product connects to a person's uh, piece of identity that is part of a whole scenario. So do things that matter for people who care is essentially understanding that in whatever whatever spectrum and scenario you're doing, there needs to be a person that is concerned about it on the other end. I was having a chat with a client earlier on, and they're conceptualizing some sort of Black Friday special for some of their media stuff, right? And I asked her, I'm like, who are we talking to? And she said, we talk to agencies and brands. I'm like, no, that's not, that's not the question. The question is, who is the individual that we're speaking to, right? Um, and it's more akin to a job title, uh, someone who has a KPI aligned with whatever service solution offering that they, they're putting out, right? And it's this idea that you can't preach to a sea of people, right? You need to be speaking to one person in the audience. And that's a way that you can resonate with a message and something that you're trying to get across because a problem is about that space where people care about um, their, their particular issues, right? So if you are servicing brands, it's about how you help them meet their KPIs and connect with customers, right? If you are selling auto parts, which is, a, which is an industry that I'm quite interested in, um, you were solving a mechanical issue that vehicles then have, but the owner would be facing a particular problem, right? And that's essentially what that looks like. So, um, yeah, things that matter for people who care is, is a really cool quotation. And that's, that's why I like it so much. It, it brings us back to the human space of one, right? A single story, a single outlook. And from that, if you're able to find many of those single individuals, you'll have a much greater part than a sea of general people um, on that particular end. Yeah, yeah I, lo- I love that perspective. It's focusing on that individual. And I think that's so important because if you're able to connect with people at, on an individual level, you're able to forge these connections that actually have meaning. And that meaning makes people feel something. And at the end of the day, people make choices based on how they feel 100%. about things. And this is something that's been proven over and over again through various psychological studies. People make choices of how they feel. So, yeah, very important. Talking about that one-on-one engagement and focusing on an individual in terms of who they are, this is your show today. Like, this (laughs) is your show. This is about you. Normally, when I speak to people on on the Seacast, I always like to go back a little bit Mm. just to kind of find out the context of where you operate today from. And then we kind of go on a journey and eventually land up finding ourselves at the end of that journey in terms of what's next and what we can expect in the future. And we kind of touched on that in the introduction, which I'm really excited about because I know you've got a lot of interesting opinions when it comes to AI. But um, I wanted to ask you, how did Casistry start? I, I saw that this isn't your first rodeo, if I'm, if I'm correct, right? No. So, so can we go back maybe before Casistry, yeah. uh, maybe a young Tumelo? How does young Tumelo find himself walking down the entrepreneurial journey? Oh, I see, I see, I see. It's that type of show. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Cool. Where to start in the story? All right. Cool. So Casistry was an iteration and is an iterative part of the process, right, of the broader and bigger picture of what it is that we're trying to accomplish. Um, so it's a leg in the race and isn't the complete, nor is it the final destination. Um, so starting, I guess, way back would be, all right, I was, I was someone who 
had lots of various interests in life, right? So from high school, it was, I guess, trying to identify which industry would best suit my personality, my interests, and what I what I call my raw talents, right? Um, and I always enjoyed speaking. So from when I was young, all the way through to sort of high school, university level, speaking is something that I was quite quite drawn to. Uh, but more so speaking for the purposes of convincing people of an idea. So, for example, as soon as we, I discovered something called the discursive essay. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if you remember that in English, right? Argumentative essay. That's ringing bells. <laughs> That's re- discursive essay. That's ringing bells. Remind me, please. Yeah, so discursive essay just means you take a topic and you basically argue a point of view, right, um, mm. on that particular end. So the minute I discovered discursive essays, that's all I did in high school. Never did a narrative. So narratives was sort of like the story, uh, one day, one day. You remember the whole, everyone had this whole trope around at the end of the narrative essay, it was all a dream, right? Remember everyone had that sort of pattern. Um, so, so I, when I discovered discursive essays, that's all I did, right? I always thought about what is the best way to try to convince someone and that someone would have been my teacher of my point of view, right? Um, and it's something I think I did pretty well at, um, particularly in that particular space. And having come from a drama um, and acting, yeah, so an acting, singing sort of performance background, it was also just understanding that there's a performative element around business. But I wasn't able to marry these two things, right, um, holistically. So I then engaged on sort of trying to understand what I wanted to do initially um, as all debating students would, would, would think at some point in time in their lives that they want to become lawyers, right? So I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer. Uh, Find out what it really entailed, and I was like, nope, no way. Um, <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to do that much reading, only to not go to court. <laughs> yeah. I love the way, like, as you're speaking, I'm just thinking about because what I did, because I also was very much into debating and kind of like talking about or convincing people. I don't know where that came from, but I don't know. Anyways, I remember I job shadowed a lawyer once and I went to courts with them and she was a part of the NPA. And when I walked in, I could see all these lawyers basically having these um, little really, what you call those things? Little like really things with a whole bunch of case case files on it and i remember asking her like do you guys read all of that and she was like yeah yeah we do i was like okay this is not for me never touched law ever since then yeah i'm just gonna put on a shameless plug there's a really cool platform that could help lawyers and helps lawyers with going through a lot of these files it basically digitizes all of the stuff that they'd have to go through and then creates a search engine on top of it right it's called doc hub um yeah so they should really check that out i'm um, doc insight sorry doc insight doc insight um yeah so really cool entrepreneur that developed this uh tris um yeah some some really awesome stuff but yeah so i looked at that and i was like no way that's that's definitely not something that i'm going to be doing um with my time nor is it where my passions really lie so my dad at the time, so so I always say to people that my mom is the best network I've ever met in my life, and my dad is the best salesperson I've ever met in my life, right? And I'm the product of both. So um, I, I I quite I quite enjoyed listening to my dad in sales calls 
on when he dropped me off to school, right? Um, and a lot of what he sold was aggregate. So he was in the construction space. He'd be selling cement, aggregate stones, and, and dealing with clients on the phone, so forth and so on. So I found it very fascinating, just observing how he dealt with client calls. Um, and he was on the he was on the phone a lot. So I was just like, this is really, really, really interesting that how he's able to functionally make a living and, 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 and provide for our family is simply through persuading people on getting more quantities that his team would be able to make sure that it arrives on time. So I think the seed for selling germinated out of that. I think another thing is we spend holidays with him. So I remember one of the holidays that we spent with him he was still working, so he'd only take leave in like January. So December would be on the road with him and he'd be seeing his clients. So when he'd be selling, um, at the time it was, he was, he was ordering quantities for like tiles. So he'd be going to like, I think it's TCM or yeah, one of the tile companies. And, okay. and, and when we'd be going to go see them, what he'd be doing is basically just going like from, from BNB to BNB to BNB to hotel. So I was like, this is such a rock star lifestyle. You know, um, every day you wake up and you don't have to do your bed. You come back and it's done, right? <laughs> and you yeah. have continental breakfasts the entire time. Uh, so it was, it was absolutely wonderful. And I think I fell in love with that sort of um, ability to be able to sell. So a lot, of, a lot of what I currently am in my iteration of selling uh, with a lot of the stuff that I do has to do with, with, with that experience with my dad. And then with my mom, she always just really knew high-powered people, right? She has this capacity to meet someone who's really important and not be shell-shocked or starstruck, right? And to just see them for the person that they are and to be able to form a genuine connection. This is something I'm always still very curious about. I mean, if, if her contact, if, if her phone got stolen, right, that person would, be, would have access to quite a significant amount of people. And it was always something that I was very curious about to say, how does she connect with people that way? And with the various events that we'd be doing, she had a catering company for some time and during school holidays, I'd wait uh, the tables for her. And I was always in charge of waiting the most important tables, although I was probably the youngest staff member. And she would coach me in this. She says, you make sure that people feel very comfortable around being able to ask and make requests and how you do so is by setting precedent very early on. So I'd find myself going to tables and cracking jokes with some, some, some adults. And I think one of the things I used to say quite often is, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, or good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Please do remember that I'm at your complete disposal. And for the next couple of hours, it's my job to make sure that you are as comfortable as possible. I was saying this is like 13, 14, right? Um, and I think they found it very impressive. So they would make the requests. But you find out that people start to be a lot more compassionate about how busy you potentially could be when you've given them the permission to ask. So they don't feel bad, nor do they get irritated. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a combination of those things when we're talking about like a younger, younger me. This is now probably between the ages of 10 and 15. So the iterations of what I wanted to become, at some point I wanted to become a chef, you know, culinary Gordon Ramsay type individual. Mom's catering company meant we peeled a lot and we cooked a lot. So uh, we ended up just knowing our way around the kitchen. And <laughs> you go further down the road and I wanted to teach music. So being a musician and, and a singer, songwriter, it was probably like university or whatnot. But I realized that a lot of my interest fell in love with 
development and learning and growing and evolving in different spaces. So I think at some later date in time, I definitely would like to teach, whether it's in a university setting or college setting, but basically to impart on young people um, some of the things we've learned in our entrepreneurship journey and to help them become sort of more resourceful and useful people to the marketplace on the continent and the globe holistically. So that's sort of some of the things that I'm thinking about post what we're currently up to now. So that was what what that looked like in terms of the formation of what that was like. So my dad was studying with the Institute of Marketing Management. And he says, why don't you try marketing? This is now Benekant metric results. I'm looking at them and I don't know what I'm going to study next or I'm going to study in this year. And he says, try IMM. Went to IMM, fell in love with marketing's mechanics, right? And I say the mechanics because if I had to customize a degree now, knowing all the things that I know, it would probably have been a combination of economics, marketing, neuroscience, and um, neuroscience and anthropology, right? So I would probably have like some sort of morphed degree structure that exists in that particular frame. Because what I fell in love with the most about marketing and its, mechan- and its mechanics was human behavior. So I ended up just being obsessed with the reading around that. So think fast and slow, you know, nudge, all of that, all of the sort of literature around that, Alchemy by Rory Sutherland, looking at all of these various elements. And I, and I fell in love with, with Rory Sutherland, which my business partner put me on when we'd just be having conversations. So I just binged, watched all of his YouTube content and started to weave that into how I started to do things. And that led into reading about negotiation, um, the likes of Chris Voss, How You Tell Story, Story Brand by, by, by Donald Miller. So you start, you start to eventually build on your repertoire around what is the, that core thing that you really enjoy. And I remember that, that, that love for human nature didn't start in varsity. It started a little earlier than that. I remember grade 11 or grade 10, I had a book which spoke about body language, uh, body language psychology. And I would read this book and try and see these cues at school and see if it worked, right? Um, sometimes for the good and sometimes for the bad <laughs> in terms of applying some of the principles. But holistically, it was just about trying to see whether or not some of the assumptions that were written in this book um, actually had real-world application. So that that is essentially that portion. Now, my entrepreneurship journey started when a couple of friends of mine were in the film space. So they wanted to, to enter a competition. It was the sub-entrepreneurship con- uh, contest. And they needed a business plan. They needed a business plan. They needed a marketing plan. They needed basically to provide all of this information to the competition so that they could stand a chance to to enter and, and, and win some grant funding. And I helped them out with this and I did it completely free. So at the time I was doing some other sort of some 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 sort of job. I was tutoring um English online uh for Chinese kids. So it was just like something that I did um as part of ways of making money. And when I had helped them enter the competition they became runners up in the contest. And I was like, huh, some of the stuff that I'm learning actually permeates onto pen and paper. And then I started my first digital agency, which is called Paramedia. And yeah, so Paramedia was a spectacular fail. Like we bombed beautifully. <laughs> and it was just all of the wonderful things that you learn as an entrepreneur, right? Um, managing cash flow, 
understanding what it is that you're looking to achieve with your business partner, having the same direction, knowing what levers you want to pull to grow the business, you know, all of the things that you have to pay the school fees and learn. So we paid our school fees on that one, but I never stopped. And I remember after Paramedia, I said, I'm just going to take two years, two years to understand what it is that I'm looking to do and basically become extremely streamlined in terms of the various strengths that I have and developing them, then creating a value proposition that can then go into market um, to, to help customers. And I found that when I started to delve deep into the go-to-market strategy school of thought, that that is my thing, right? Um, and when I built on it and tested it with different iterations for different types of businesses, started to see results from that. I was like, okay, we could do something here. Um, and then cash is born from that. Um, it was initially Nucleus. I never registered Nucleus as the business idea. I remember my baby sister who, who, who works with me, she was like, ah, you like the nucleus of the team, right? She's talking about the, the structure of the cell. Um, and I said, yeah, the business name was Nucleus before it became uh, Casualty. She's like, that's so interesting. And she, she didn't, she didn't, she hadn't known that the, the business name was Nucleus. She's a little bit of a science nerd, um, <laughs> on that particular one. So yeah, that's, that's how Casualty came about. In between, there were like a couple of ventures that we tried out. I remember we wanted to create a virtual ISP. Um, my current business partner and I, we're working on that. We paid a ton of school fees on that too. Um, so yeah, it was just like a lot of experimentation. And I think my mindset very much has been that if in our formative years, we have a lot of energy to go clubbing, to go partying, you know what I mean? And still wake up in the morning and go to work or go to school and be functional. If you redirected that energy for the most part into trying to grow and develop whatever future you envision for yourself, you can only imagine what outcomes you can have because you almost have an, an, an inexhaustible tap of energy, right, that you can tap into. Your body hasn't caught up to the fact that you need a certain amount of hours of sleep, so forth and so on. So I think it was, it was a large part of what we did for, for the most part, and it, it helped us understand the African landscape. It also helped us understand generational nuances, which I'll speak to later, you know, how is it that we connect with all the generations being young entrepreneurs? How do we read the room to make sure that we're connecting with them um, so they can trust us with money? Because at the end of the day, whatever the client is trying to get out of as an outcome is it can't just be for vibes, bro. <laughs> yep. Actually has to be providing value. So yeah. that is essentially how we came to Casistry. A lot of stumbling along the way, but also a lot of intentional development. You've got to fall off the bicycle a few times in order to learn how to pedal without training wheels, right? So, yeah, it's a process that you have to go through. And as you've gone through each step of that process, there's a common thread that I keep seeing there. And I think it ties in very closely with communication and also the human elements mm. and being able to connect. Because if you think about communication, what is the purpose of communication? The purpose of the communication is to connect with indiv other individuals, to share ideas, uh, to share perspectives, to, to learn, to grow, to love, whatever you want to call it. So um, that connection element is something that I'm seeing come up a lot. And it's very interesting because that communication element was very visible through all the different steps that you mentioned, right? Like your dad with his sales. Sales is communicating. It's about 
being able to connect with another person on a human level, yes. make them feel understood and provide a solution to the problem that they're facing. Yeah. If you're able to do that, you will sell that product as long as it's offering value. Yes. With your mom, it was about being able to offer value to the people at the table that you were serving, being able to communicate with them, understand what it is that they need and also deliver it to them. And that communication element is so important when it comes to being human, because we as humans, the one of the most important parts of us being human, the reason why we're still here today is because of our ability to work together as yeah. a group of people. And that's what I love about that common thread is like, it's even it's still visible through or casistry. It's still visible through casistry today. Because when I look at casistry, I know that what you guys are doing there is very centered around human-centric business models, right? It's about structuring business that is delivering value to human beings. So tell me more about this human-centric business model. Like yeah. We kind of know where it comes from, but how has that evolved into what you're doing today? Awesome, awesome, awesome. So I'm going to shout out to a good friend of mine, Terry Mube. She's currently residing in the U.S. of A. Um, I remember, I remember she was studying her psychology degree at the time and we just have conversations about people, uh, early childhood development, all the way through to how that informs adult behavior, behavior in adolescence. And she was very socialist <laughs> in, in her ideology and thinking, right? And I remember I said something to her on the bus and I was like, wow, you'd make so much money if you had a capitalistic thought process because you could hack people. Right. Um, and she just laughed. She's like, oh, Dumela, does everything that you hear me say sound like a money opportunity? And I'm like, yeah, it's very fascinating. Right. Uh, and I remember that I would, I would always borrow like textbooks that she'd be using out of pure interest. It had nothing to do with trying to um, get a degree or anything like that. So the human centric process around what is we're trying to do, and it stemmed from a lot of the conversations Terry and I had, was if you understood a lot of the social sciences or what we call the decision sciences um, as a business, you would build things better, you would communicate those things better for adoption and you'd sustain customers in a better way, right? So my whole idea around this was how is it that you could build a, like a, a virtuous cycle of customer interactions that made people happy to be your customer, you know? And I, I don't think that's a question we ask ourselves often. It's like, you're trying to attract customers, but are these customers happy? Not satisfied. I mean, there's a whole customer satisfaction thing, right? But are your customers happy to be served by you, you know? And understanding happiness becomes then part and parcel of the science. So there's a podcast I really love. Uh, Dr. Laurel Santos uh, has something called the Happiness Lab. And she just discusses all these interesting finds within the happiness literature and literally studying what are the mechanisms that make people feel a lot better. So with all of this so, thinking... Just something to, that I wanted to point out. Don't you find it interesting that you are comparing satisfaction to happiness? And the difference between those two things is happiness is an emotion. Yeah. It's a feeling. Yeah. Satisfaction isn't as much of an emotion, you know, it's kind of a state of being. Yes, 100%. I think that's kind of the difference there is that emotion and that's, that emotion is what makes us human. Yes. Yes. Also, another thing is satisfaction doesn't drive action. 
Mm. You know what I mean? When human beings are at a level of content, like when they when they're content or um they're in a place where it's comfortable, you don't feel like doing very much. You know what I mean? Mm. So a lot of students will resonate with the fact that a deadline really drives you to act. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you will put yeah. the midnight oil and all of these wonderful things because there's something that you need to get done. And you're right. Happiness is an emotion. So that emotional state can still drive action. You know what I mean? That's the thing, right? Because you could either take action based off of survival yes. or you could take action based off of inspiration. Yes. Because I think if you're inspired, yes. you can also, that can also push you to take action. Yes. And if you're going to create a product, that's going to leave someone feeling inspired, feeling motivated, feeling good. They're going to repay that back to you in some other form, whether it be recommending it to someone or purchasing again, or like you said, continuing that relationship. Yep. So I love what you're saying about satisfaction. It's kind of like a lukewarm. Yes. It's the equivalent of just being like lukewarm. Yes. It's like, okay, it's good enough, mm -hmm. right? 100%. And that shouldn't be what we're striving for. 100%. I just feel like a biblical reference, right? Even in the Bible, it says, this lukewarm generation, I will spew you out. Um, so no one likes lukewarm, <laughs> just from that particular perspective. So I looked, I looked at some of the various interesting things that she was saying. Then I started to look at the various disciplines in the various fields. So anthropology was one of them, right? Um, psychology was another field that, they, that that we then looked into. And then we started to look at economics as well as part and parcel of understanding um, how people think about lack, how people think about abundance and those various structures, right? Neuroscience was another field that we were then looking into. Then we started to recognize very interesting patterns around that and sociology obviously being a subsect of psychology, right? So when you when you think about all of those various elements, just in terms of the decision sciences, and you combine that with data. Now, think about how data tells you about patterns, tells you about behavior, and also tells you about outcomes that people um, had, right? But what data doesn't do very well is tell the story of why. It just tells you what it is. Like, mm. gives you the outcome. It's like, this and then you kind of have to connect the dots for yourself and hypothesize as to why this is happening. 100%. So where does that, where does that language exist? It exists in the decision sciences, right? Because you are able to ascribe to this behavior what the phenomenon is. So here they are studying the phenomenon. On this end, it's looking at the output then you can build solutions and you can start to have an understanding of what that looks like. So the decision sciences plus the data story, right, as well as some of the interventions that you're looking to do can help you figure out what business solutions you then need to put out. And that's our philosophy of doing work, right? So just to make it practical is we currently have a client. So, so we have something called the secondary city focus. And what the se secondary city focus is, is looking at, Places that are primed for growth outside of the major metropolitan areas. So this would be outside of Joburg, Cape Town, Durban. So if you have to think about what are some of the places that actually could interconnect um, the country and also have a new sort of economic boom. And that's something that we look at. And it's typically outside of the province or outside of Gauteng as, as, as a province. And we're finding very interesting things where People who have traditionally spent a lot of time in Gauteng are going back home, building stuff. People are looking to find ways to build businesses within that particular area. 
create centers of economic growth for themselves because you start to have an understanding. So wait a minute. I go to, I go to Joburg to work, but my family has a farm. Why don't I build a supermarket? You know, and it's because of your exposure and experience. You see, okay, spa, um, checkers, woolies, pick and pay can all exist literally in like uh, a 10 kilometer radius of one another. And none of those businesses are dying. Where I come from, we only have one store, you know? So why don't I build something here? And understanding the customer psychology in those particular spaces is something we've been quite interested in, you know? People's buying consumptions. So, so one of the things um, that is true about these markets is people aren't cash. Well, people, it's not that people don't get paid. It's just they don't get paid well. And what, what getting paid well means is you and I typically are, are used to having a lump sum payment. So at the end of the month, I receive my salary, right? That's a lump sum payment. And with this, with the salary, I then committed to paying certain things. I pay for my car, I pay for the house, I pay for groceries, and then whatever's left is my discretionary spending after putting one of my savings, right? Whereas the spending patterns of people that would be classified as bottom of the pyramid or in peri-urban areas and rural areas would have their, their spending in sort of a incremental sort of installment type structure, right? Where they have wages. So I work for the week and I get paid that week. I work for the week, I get paid, or I get paid on a daily basis. So what you start to recognize, and one of the guys that was so instrumental about this thinking is a guy called Miles Kubega, right? Vuyo. I'm not sure if you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know him. Yeah, Vuyo. <laughs> He's a big, big dreamer. Yes, the big, big dreamer. <laughs> so he's very instrumental in this thinking where he says, um, when you think about how people then commit their payments to certain things, it's about having the relationship between quantities as well as what their immediate needs look like. And then making sure that all of the other stuff that would fulfill sort of a bulk normal structure, they're able to get the benefits of that without needing to pay the upfront payment. With that model, you can create an incredibly successful business within rural and peri-urban areas because people are then able to commit as much as they can, right? And it's like if the basket size is on average 100, 150 bucks, but that's high frequency, high volume, which these areas are typically um, population dense. Man, 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 man. Yeah. Yeah. People don't understand the value of these economies. Because, like you said, it's not measured in these like lump sum terms. Yeah. People think if you are operating in the lower in the period, as you put it, that there isn't money there. It's like no, there there is money there, and there is opportunity, and we should be finding ways to to meet the needs that people have. What I love about Vuyo is that that model that you're outlining there in terms of being able to buy exactly what you need yeah. instead of having to buy bulk right and it's it's so cool I, I'm, I'm assuming you've probably um heard him talking about the initiative that he starts oh, where he's opening up grocery stores yeah. um within townships yeah. and allowing people to buy according to exact according to weight yeah and that's that's such a such a great way to to solve a problem and i'm very curious uh, when i heard about it i think it was about maybe 12 months ago mm. Um, so I'm very curious to see how that business model has been evolving and, and growing over time um, with 
with Vuyo. Shout out, shout out to Miles. Yeah, Kubeka, like, yeah. So, 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 yeah, so the business that, is called the business is called Kualiza, which directly translates yes. to fill up, right? Um, or yes. to basically just like fill in the gaps. You know what I mean? Mm. So, yeah. So Kualiza is a, is a fantastic business model. Um, I'll be interested as well to just see what that process is like. So Vuyo, um, aka Miles Kubeka, if you're listening, come onto the pod. Tell us more. Exactly. <laughs> we want to. We want to learn. We yeah, want to learn. Tell us more. Come on. Yeah. Part. So, so, so there was an interesting um, uh, client case that we we had, and it was ah, Josh. The trauma of getting there was quite hectic, right? So, <laughs> so uh, I'm gonna explain this. So, do you know a place? Do you know a place called? Uh, I'm trying to remember right now. Just give me a second. Okay, but the place that we were at was called uh, Exhefin. And okay. on the map of South Africa, you literally, where we were standing, I could see Mozambique and I could see Swaziland. Okay. Where I was standing, I could see Mozambique and I could see Swaziland, right? It was on yeah. top of a mountain. Josini, yes, that's the place. So Josini is the town, right? Um, so okay. after this, just type in Josini and you will see how far we went. And okay. one of one of the people uh, uh, um, and the client is trying to build it is literally a shopping complex on top of a mountain. Interesting. And you must remember that there are a couple of infrastructure issues. So there's very limited mm. roads. Driving mm. on there is 40 kilometers of gravel. Public transport is sparse because there are intervals in which people have to be able to get onto a taxi that takes them to town. Typically, you're traveling early in the morning and you're coming back late in the afternoon, right? And this is 40 kilometers on gravel. In between there, there are about oh, probably close to 70 clinics. Smaller communities range in the hundreds, right? Just sort of off stream, on the mountain, down the mountain, you know, on, on that particular end. And these are what we term as like villages. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But he's building a state-of-the-art shopping center on a mountain that has very limited access to water, but there's Wi-Fi, and there's mm. security, and there's a butchery, and there's a grocer, right? And there's a hardware store on this particular plane. And when you understand what the behavioral structures then look like of those particular customers' constituency is he's able to redirect traffic of all the various individuals that would be having to go 40 kilometers on gravel where they can be traveling um, less than 15, 20 Ks, right, within a particular community environment. And this is built off of the understanding that if you think about how social welfare works in the country, is people pay for things in cycles, even those that are not, uh, uh, that are not employed. And you see this in even uh, FMCG or, or, or retailers uh, reporting in the annual financial statements. They would tell you that a late payment from Sasa affected their mm. their, their business cash flow, like for mm. in, in, for Mr. Price or whatever. They Looking at those particular dynamics, it's he is understanding that there's an opportunity here to build a state of the art facility for these various communities because everyone has to eat. At the end of the day, right, regardless of whether you're BOP or top of the pyramid, everyone has to eat. So it was such an interesting experience. Um, and like I said, it was a traumatic drive because we left a little later than we should have. And if you don't know where you're going on top of a mountain, 
um, driving a little starlet. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was quite hectic. It's a very we're alive. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah it, it definitely was a fantastic experience, right? And we're starting to see those models being adopted uh, by some of our other clients. So this is what we call the venture management side of the business, where we essentially help the client in terms of understanding how should they be establishing their infrastructure to accommodate their clients, right? And to ensure that there's sustainability baked into their business model, right? So that's what the venture management side of the business then looks like. So yeah, that's that's essentially what that is. As you're speaking, I'm just thinking about how there is an opportunity there because a lot of people are coming to city centers to look for opportunities. So they're going to Cape Town, they're going to Joburgs to try and find good paying jobs. And relating this back to the digital space, you know, we are coming out of COVID, this thing of working remotely has become a lot more acceptable, a lot more accepted. As a young person who has access to a laptop, and has access to an internet connection, it's very much possible for me to 